Morning, Gospel Hope. Love that, love that, love that. Um, Well, it is always a pleasure to be before you and to serve you in this wonderful way of preaching God's Word. And so uh, this morning, as you already know, we are continuing in our series from the book of Colossians, Christ Overall or Christ Above All. So as high as you can get him, Christ there, right? And as much stuff as you can think of that goes under all, he's over that. How about that? All right. And so uh, as we've been walking through the text, I hope that you and I both have been faithfully kind of combing through our lives, turning over every stone, the big ones and the small ones, and saying, Lord, why have I not yet let you be Lord? I hope we're living through the text and not just listening and enjoying, you know, a decently packaged set of messages. And so uh, that's my prayer for us, um, even as we go before the Lord this morning. So, Father God, we come before you uh, this morning. We thank you and praise you for the reality that the Bible declares for us that Jesus Christ is above all. He has a name that is above every name, that in him you vested all authority, both in heaven and in earth, over things visible and visible, thrones, dominions, Lord God, you name it. There's nothing that the Lord is not over. And Lord God, while we see that in scripture and while we say it, Lord God, freely and unawkwardly, Lord God, we don't always feel it manifest in our lives and in our daily circumstances. We beg, oh God, that you would speak to us through your word today and show us exactly how to bring these precious realities, Lord God, into practice. We need you. Show us ourselves in the mirror of your word. Show us our world more clearly through the window of your word that we may indeed be beacons that not only echo to our own selves that you are above all, but others who look at our lives would come to that same conclusion based on how we walk our faith out. So. Lord God, we ask that uh, move us completely out of the way. If we have sin in our lives that we're, uh, that is unconfessed, that we're still holding on to attitudes and ideas that would compete with the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray that you would pull those things down, point them out to us. Lord God, that we would be swift to repent and um, allow you to have full reign in our hearts. This is our earnest prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, um, as you've heard, as we've been building up in this series, watching Jesus Christ through the pages of Corinth become or be revealed to us as Lord over all. And there were some distinct problems that we've already talked about, competing ideologies within the uh, Colossian church, specifically that of mysticism, traditionalism, uh, as well as uh, one other that I can't quite remember, um, or uh, philosophy uh, and wisdom uh, that they were trying to co-opt and bring from other places in life. And their dilemma is not unlike ours. While it may not necessarily be uh, mysticism, philosophy, or traditionalism, there are always competing ideologies that are seeking to creep in our lives. And those competing ideologies often come from places where we spend the most time. You know, we oftentimes will look at the Bible and say, well, that's not going to be me. Well, it may not be you in the most explicit example, but there are always ways where Satan is very cleverly trying to camouflage anti-Christian influences and bring them into our lives. And we find ourselves wholeheartedly vested in believing in something And we don't know how that creeped into our Christianity because it's gotten so close to it that it felt like our faith in Christ. And so we want to be diligent and not blind to believe that just because the specific words and examples that Paul uses toward the Colossian church may not be our particular sin or our particular example, that we don't close our ears to this message and believe that we are somehow exempt from the same difficulty, the same obstacles that they had. Amen. 
When we look at um, Colossians chapter 3, there's one verse that I want us to just kind of stew over together. I'm going to go through and walk us through the entire passage, but I want us to just look really quickly at just the first verse because there's something really awesome happening here. So if you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, look at this, savor it, read it slowly. Don't rush. It says, so if you have been raised with the Messiah or with Christ... Seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. One more time. So if you have been, it's a rhetorical question. The assumption is we have been. So if you have been raised with the Messiah, with the Christ, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. In multiple places throughout the scripture, the Bible does us a great favor in painting for us this picture of what it means for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of the Father. It also gives us a great, do a great job of of showing us and talking to us in detail about what it means to be raised with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very startling and vivid imagery. It kind of reminds me actually of an experience that I had earlier this week. I found an old thumb drive. I just kind of in a drawer somewhere. And I said, oh, what in the world is this? And so I decided to plug the thumb drive in, and lo and behold, it's a a thumb drive that I used to back up some files from a laptop that I had as early or as late as 2009. So I began to pack through some of its files. I I found old presentations from work, other things that I thought to be funny, some things that I thought to be grimy. And I was like, oh, I see what I'm doing. I was backing up this computer. The company was changing over our technology, and I wanted to keep all my personal stuff. But there was one file in particular that was particularly gripping. Well, it was a folder, actually. And it said, Palm Photos. I was like, Palm? I was like, I remember that. Palm Pilot? Is that what this is from? So I clicked on the folder, and sure enough, there's this little cache of photos. And you won't believe this. One of them was time-stamped. February the 5th, 2004, 2.33 p.m. I opened the photo, and, and there it is. It's me with a full head of hair. Silky, down to my shoulders. Scratch that from the record. Wasn't silky and it wasn't down to my shoulders, but it was nice. Full head of hair, well-groomed goatee. I'm standing amongst a group of doctors in their full regalia, mask and the whole deal, right? I got a little pair of scissors on my hand and guess what's happening? I'm cutting the cord. That's right, it's Amon in his first minutes, taking a breath, resting on the, the abdomen of his mother. We're right there in his first minutes. We have it captured live. And it was so crisp and so clear that it took me back. I remember the shirt that I was wearing. I remember the smell of the labor and delivery room. I remember all that. I remember the the machines and the heart rate monitor, beep, beep, for mama and baby. I remember that moment. But it got even deeper. I clicked through some more photos, and I found one of Doria, the one we just dropped off at college a couple of weeks ago. Here she is at six months old, refusing to take a nap and lay down and playing midnight peekaboo, right? And I snapped a little photo in between the bars of her crib. And here they are. And I'm like, wow, look at these photos. And I got a little bit nostalgic. And I was like, well, I didn't tear up because that's, that's the high road. Um, <laughs> I got a little bit nostalgic and I started thinking back. But then I stopped thinking back and I started thinking forward. Because I was like, man, these, these guys have gotten kind of big now, right? I mean, if you know, any of you know my kid, one of them is actually, you know, my wingman up in the media booth right now pressing the button. And the other one is sitting over here, just kind of blew into town. I mean, you're talking about back then in the photos, their their needs were were quite simple. They needed naps, milk, 
love and clean diaper. Today, they need a new chair and a new laptop in their dorm room, one that can run SolidWorks engineering software. I got the other one, I'm running up and down the road looking for a TI-84 calculator, you know, for some math class. So one of them needs an oil change, the other one needs relationship advice. And while their needs, while their needs, their particular needs have become significantly more complex since those first photos, their principal need has always been the same. And that is they need the guy who cut the cord. They need the woman who gave birth to them. They need us as parents. They need us just as much now as they needed us then, but they just need us in different ways. And so as I think about that vivid imagery that took me back, I also think about the vivid imagery of Scripture. And when it takes us back and says things like, if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek those things that are above where he is seated next to the Father. These are very vivid and robust images that they say, I am actually a part of the portrait. This is God, God says, I was raised with him. Even Paul says in other places that I am seated with him in heavenly places. And so are you. And so I believe that the Bible would call, similar to what I did when looking at my computer, I need to fast forward and not just look at the nostalgia of those vivid imageries, but I believe this, that we must bring the vivid imagery of being raised with Christ into practical reality. We must bring the vivid imagery of being raised with Christ into a contemporary practical reality. We cannot let the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ be some ancient scrapbook on our metaphorical, biblical thumb drives that we gaze at and get all fuzzy on the inside and say, look at that Jesus doing it again back in the day. We must bring that vivid imagery of Jesus Christ and us being raised with him into local, contemporary, practical utilization. How? And this is what Paul spends the next 10 verses explaining to us is how it is that we're supposed to apply this deep reality of having been raised with the Messiah, then seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. And so uh, we're going to talk about today a little bit of the new you, but once again, what we must bring the vivid imagery of being raised with Christ into practical reality. And here's how. The Bible, Paul in particular, Holy Spirit through his pen, gives us three distinct buckets of thought that should challenge us in how we would actually bring this idea of being raised with Christ and how we would seek him. He gives us three distinct ways to do it. They are as follows. Number one, we should seek and set. Number two, we should put certain things to death and put certain things away. And number three, we should put off certain things and we should put on certain things. If you see them there on the screen, if you're a note taker. The hows we will do this is we will seek and set. We must put certain things to death and put certain things away. We must put off certain things and we must put on certain things. And so in today's text, we're going to walk through those realities together. So if you have your Bibles, lean in or either look on the screen as we kind of handle the first four verses. They read as follows. You know the first one, but it says, So if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above where the Messiah is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on what is above and not what is on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. 
we're told quite plainly and simply that here's what we must seek and set. We must seek and set, put our minds on the new power that I have in Christ. We must seek and set my mind on the new power that I have in Christ. If you are familiar with these passages, John chapter 1 verse 12 put it this way, but all those who received him, that is those who placed faith in Christ, gave he them the right, some versions say gave he them the power to become the children of God. All those who would believe in his name, he would give them new rights. The Bible would even go on further to put it this way in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 14 through 16 that says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So no doubt that we should seek and set our minds on this new power that I have in Christ. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Well, how is seeking and setting my mind on this new power that I have in Christ supposed to produce this dynamic effect of putting certain things to death, putting on the new man and putting off the new man, avoiding all of this, these, I mean, this various sinful things that we see uh, uh, mapped out in the scriptures, right? You saw that, I mean, just a very interesting list, lust, evil, desire, greed, and idolatry, and all of these particulars. We are told that we need to put these things away, but exactly how? How is seeking and setting my mind on things that are above going to accomplish all of that? It seems too simplistic, but I am reminded of this. How many people remember, well, you may not remember, but from history, how many people are familiar with what occurred on January the 1st, 1863? On January the 1st, 1863, the then president, Abraham Lincoln, signed into law the Emancipation Proclamation. In that Emancipation Proclamation, the slaves were officially made free. All right. So if I'm going to seek and set my mind on those things which are above, remember very carefully that date, January 1, 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation is signed into law. But do you realize that it was not until June 19th of 1865 that all slaves officially got the word? So in other words, there were those who were technically, officially, powerfully, wonderfully, awesomely free from slavery. In theory, but not in practice. Why? Because they didn't know they were free. They didn't know the information hadn't got there yet. And so there were those who stayed in slavery, stayed in slavery to their, their old background, their old situation. Number one, because of ignorance, not the negative kind where we say, oh, man, you're so ignorant. But the simple fact that they didn't know that they were free. This is also the condition of many Christians because we have not sought and set our mind on things that are above. We don't really realize what it means to be raised with Christ and that at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it clearly means that he victoriously rose and gained victory over sin, death and the devil. And all who would place their faith in Christ participate in that freedom. But do we really know that? How well do we know that? Have we been officially informed? And if we've not been reading our Bibles and investing our hearts in that truth, we continue to live like the old man for sake of ignorance, enslaved to those former backgrounds. But there were those who also remained in slavery because of complacence. 
after having been officially free and the knowledge of their freedom was there, like the children of Israel, there was something about the life that they formerly lived that was just familiar. And they just wish to kind of change a few of the conditions, but not have a new life holistically. This, too, is also the case with many of us as believers. We're not asking God to change our lives holistically. Just change some of the settings. Just change the pinch points. Just change the stuff about my life that I don't particularly like, Lord, but I'm not looking for a radical overhaul in the Savior. I don't need to be a completely new me. I just need you to fix some of the stuff that I feel like is getting in the way of my agenda. Similarly, there were those slaves who were aware of their condition, but they were more familiar with their old setting and decided to stay. And even more dangerously, there were those who, upon knowledge of their newfound freedom, there was both resistance from those that would let them go, and they interpreted that resistance as life beyond the plantations being too difficult to actually live out. And therefore, for the sake of a life that wasn't wanted, it was too hard and too difficult seemingly to live free. This also is the case of many Christians. Man, holy living seems too hard. Living in a way where I put all those things that I used to do and I grew up doing and they were very much a part of my life, they seem so difficult. And I don't see anybody else really succeeding at at, at really pushing away lust and, and impurity and evil thoughts and ideas. Why am I trying so hard at these things? And so for lack of desire to live a life that earnestly honors God because it may be too hard or feel too hard, we relax and go back to a condition of slavery, a slavery to sin, a condition that the Lord Jesus Christ died and was raised to break us from. So we are to often seek and set our minds on the new power and the new reality that I have in Jesus Christ. Simply put, We need to read and meditate daily to understand our salvation fully. We need to read and meditate on God's word daily to understand our salvation fully. It is not enough to do it kind of the old Sunday school style where you color in a few pictures of Jesus on the cross and another one of him at an empty tomb and go, yep, I got that story down. We must be lifelong students of the particulars of what it means to be raised with Christ combing over those verses and those chapters diligently and asking the Lord not to just deposit them in my memory, but asking the Lord to clearly show me areas of my life where I have been operating in ignorance, complacency, or even resistance to the power that he was raised with. Because the Bible tells us very beautifully this truth about Jesus and him being raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. It says that that same power is at work within those who place faith in Christ. So if the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within me, I have more than enough, more than enough, more than enough to effectively win the fight against the old man or the old person that I used to be. And so the only way that we become firm in that is to be like an attorney of our own salvation. What I mean is you don't become your advocate, but you're constantly studying the rules of the game. You're constantly understanding and and mulling over this new covenant or this new contract that you have. You're you're, you're not allowing a single jot or tittle or the the slightest comma of, of the promises of God for your life to go unread and to go understood or to go under meditated on. So this is why the Bible calls us to constantly, not to just casually read it, but to deeply meditate on it and to stay there until God would speak to us through it. And so how do we seek and set our mind on the new power I have in Christ? 
by reading and meditating daily so that I am constantly understanding my salvation fully. Remember in the opening example how over the last 18 years, the needs of my children have become particularly different, but principally the same. One of the great stumbling blocks for many of us, myself included, is that we move to a place in life where we feel like the issues that we're facing are more advanced than some good old time religion. We feel like these issues are too chunky. No, no, no. I I need something in addition to Jesus because this isn't just rudimentary me trying to get free from hell. I've got I'm I'm working with a a divorce. I'm working with a bankruptcy. I'm working with uh, I'm working with an adultery. I'm working with pornography. I'm working with uh, 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 I'm working with anxiety. I'm working with an identity crisis. I've got an unruly child. Right? I've got, a, I've got this woefully multi-layered, uncomfortable existence. Jesus, I need more than just a couple of promises about having been raised with you. And if that's the conversation, we are ignorant of the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And the only way to really acquaint ourselves with it is to study and meditate on God's word daily until we are fully informed of our salvation fully. And the until will not happen until we see him face to face. So in other words, we never get a break. Seminary professors don't get a break. Pastors don't get a break. Parishioners don't get a break. We must all study and meditate God's word daily in order to understand our salvation fully. Because the Lord is looking for the opportunity to watch us apply him as Lord over everything as our lives become more complex and sophisticated. And so let's take a look at verses five through eight. Therefore, put to death what belongs to To your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now you must also put away the following anger, malice, wrath, slander and filthy language from your mouth. How many people in reading these conversations in the Bible, you have been reading the particulars of your salvation daily or at least you've been doing it frequently. How many of you will join me in a symphony of raised hands and honestly say that if my old man is so dead, why does he seem so alive at times? Has anybody ever asked that question? Yeah, 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 yeah. Me too. Me too. I asked that question to the text as I was working through this. Lord, the, the old man is dead. Well, what's up? Well, one thing I come to note is that, the, that Satan is the master counterfeiter. And his end game is, if not to absolutely copy God, to definitely trick his people into appealing to him as though we were his God. He has this wonderful, uh, uh, not wonderful, uh, this, this elaborate scheme of counterfeits that he brings into our lives to make us somehow give him glory and attention that should belong to God. And as a master counterfeiter, we should not be surprised to see Satan trying to also be in the resurrection business. You see, the resurrection business is God's, is, no pun intended, Jesus' crowning achievement, right? Because he is raised from the dead, he receives a name that is above every name, and then he is seated as Messiah at the right hand of the Father. And so, no doubt in our lives, Satan would love to resurrect the old man, because that would be analogous to him copying what God is doing. So exactly how does he perform these would-be false or fake re- uh, resurrections? Well... Revelation tells us this in uh, chapter 12, verse 10, it says, then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come. 
because of the accuser of our brethren, he has been thrown out. The one who accuses them before God day and night. Well, the first thing we need to know is that Satan is constantly in a mode of accusation. Many years ago, in the early to mid-1990s, I actually was a security guard. We have any other former security guards who have been current in the room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I was of the unarmed variation, right, of security guard. You know, I, I secured many banks that got robbed while I was up in them. Uh, 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 vacant buildings, you know, would be the favorite one, you know, at night where nobody's really coming around. You're just trying to keep people from parking in the wrong place. But, 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 but do being an unarmed security guard is a very informative job. Because you are sat down by your employer and told your job is not to arrest anyone as much as you feel it. And when you get that new, I mean, the, the uniforms are often very nice. The badges look nice. The utility belt that they give you. I mean, it's a, all this stuff just comes together so wonderfully. They even give you a little handbook on like crowd control. It depends on what company you work for. But here's the deal. Do you know that a security guard's only offensive weapon is a notebook? Because the the security guard is supposed to record whatever happens and be prepared to replay with excruciating detail to the real authorities when they get there. This is exactly what you're told to do. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan is the proverbial unarmed security guard. In Christ, he has no arresting power. His offensive weapon is a notebook. And all he does is he walks around in our lives reminding us of who we used to be and trying to retell that story to us and to God and to others with the kind of vivid, provocative recitation that would get us to want to redo that life. He retells our past with beautiful color. He retells our past and all of the particulars of the incidents. These are real things that we've done. I mean, he's a wonderful security guard of the unarmed variation. He is toothless, he is clubless, he is handcuffless. He can do nothing to us if we are truly in Christ, but remind us of our past, constantly accusing us. You used to do this, find out one more time. Remember when you, man, you were the, you were the, man, you were the star. You used to kill it, man. You remember when you were like this? You remember how you felt? And I want you to understand that while sin, when we see it on the page, when it's not our sin, it looks sticky, it looks ugly, it looks prickly, and it looks nasty. But every single sin that we've ever lived in was a type of satisfaction that we found in it outside of Christ. Even when we were walking with Christ, every single sin is an effort to satisfy something that should only be satisfied in Christ outside of Christ. And so Satan walks around with this notebook literally reminding us of how we satisfied ourselves. Telling us half the story, things that are true, but half the story, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. Eve wanted to satisfy something, a legitimate curiosity to know, but to satisfy it outside of God's methodology. This is exactly how he works. So he follows us around, accusing us and reminding us of all these things. Appealing to us, intellectually trying to show us how we can maybe do it just one more time and get away with it. Or, as I like to call it, how we can dance around the edge of the Grand Canyon. Has anybody ever heard this before? If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it is this massively deep, super spooky, um, wonderful picture opportunity. Right? However, some of the best photos are found where? As close as you can possibly get outside of that natural boundary that they put up. Who wants to see a weak photo of the Grand Canyon of somebody several feet away from the edge? But what the old man loves to do is to play near the edge. I don't know about you, but in my life, in fighting with the old man, there's always this voice that wants to say, well, the experience would not have been all that bad if I had not officially fallen into sin. 
So let's see how close we can get to it without falling in. The lie in that strategy is that in order to know how officially close you can get without falling in, you must fall in. Are you following me? Am I the only one that has done this? Am I the only one that has sinned? Am I the only one that has played with previous lifestyles just to say, well, where's the point of sin? Because right now it just feels like a really robust temptation. Okay, well, then I'll preach to me. And so the old man loves to dance at the edge of the canyon. Or as Proverbs would put it, as a dog returns to his vomit, so the fool repeats his foolishness. But we don't do these things arbitrarily. We do them because Satan is constantly working on us emotionally, raising up memories of how we felt in those moments when we lived in those sins. Because they did have. Let's, be, let's, let's, let's not be ashamed to admit because that's what sin is. Sin brought about an element of satisfaction in our lives, whether it was momentary, whether it was just emotional, whether it was intellectual, whatever it was, it brought about a moment where we was like, okay, even outbursts of rage and anger. What do we say after we've lost it on someone? Yeah, I just need to get that off my chest. There's a degree of relief and satisfaction that we feel from every single sin that we commit. And Satan knows that. And therefore, this is where he does his best counterfeit work of trying to resurrect the old man in our lives. If he can press enough buttons, he can get the old man's voice to be very loud and vivid, calling us back to who we used to be. But what does the Bible tell us? To put to death and to put away the practices of the old life. We need to realize this, that every single sin is a sign of a part of my life that is not yet satisfied in Christ. We need to realize, it should be on the screen here, we need to realize that every single sin in my life is a part of that my life that has yet to be satisfied in Christ. Now let's talk even more practically. When you and I repent, does it sound like this? Dear God, if I did anything today that offends you, please forgive me. Also, could you help Sarah? I mean, just blow past that sin. Anybody else do that? I mean, you have other bigger topics. You've got this whole list that you've got. Dear God, I know that I'm not right in many ways. Just kind of help my heart. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness as you promised in 1 John. Right? Right? Do you race past your sin? The Bible says confess it. To confess it. I don't know if you, I, I told you about my times in court before, but when you go to, when you go to stand before the judge and you confess, here we go. All right. When you stand before the judge, you go to confess. They are interested in a generic a generic announcement of wrong, but a particular acceptance of guilt. And I'm not saying you got to swim in your time of repentance, but true confession to come into agreement with God and what was wrong with that. If you look at the life of David, he didn't just zip over there. Dear God, what I did was wrong. Can you just kind of help me and move on with the business of the kingdom? I mean, it was legitimately David's discussion of his sin before God was a full on agreement. It was God, I have sinned against you and you alone. And he began to unpack the particulars of the role that sin plays in his life and how it was satisfaction outside of him. When we talk to the Lord, especially in an area that has a recurring theme in our lives, I would like to invite us to have a more detailed discussion and say, Lord, here I am again on this same sin, or maybe it's a fresh one. Could you show me where I am pursuing satisfaction outside of you and where I need to know Jesus as Lord over this particular area and what satisfaction in him looks like in particular. Because that's where we live. 
if you skate past your sin as just a minor moral infraction, an area of need for behavior modification, real repentance cannot take place because what we do not understand is how have we chosen to substitute something else for the Savior in that place. Talk to God about your sin, not just mention it as a passing note on your way to your other agenda. This is how we put him to death. And this is how we put him away. We also need to be candidly honest with ourselves and recognize that there are certain things that we get too close to the flames. We are still revisiting the same emotional territory. Remember the unarmed security guard? Well, how is it that he's whispering in our ear? Well, oftentimes when we go back to the same areas of life emotionally, when we go back to the same areas of life, right, where, where, where the original sin lived, when we go back into some of those relationships or mental spaces that we should never be in, these are, these are the times when the old security guard can pull out his notepad and begin to remind us of the past life. But then Paul goes further in verses 9 through 11. He tells us, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek or Jew or circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. We are told in this third piece to put off and to put on the new person that I have been made in Christ. One of the great sins and it is more of a wardrobe sin that I commit almost annually, is that I'll take off one of my favorite or two of my favorite wool sweaters and I fold them up at the end of the season and I put them on the shelf rather than in the cedar chest. So when I come back to wear them, they are what? They are holy <laughs> and not before God. <laughs> they have holes in them. And because it's my favorite sweater, rather than throwing it away, I am looking for as many ways as I possibly can to either wear it and hide the holes or to simply mend the holes and keep giving that bad boy some mileage. This is many of us in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, self-included. We are told to holistically, regardless of where the holes are, because we don't view the old self as being all that bad. Jesus, I just needed some mending. I didn't need to be totally made a brand new creation. But that's not the story of salvation. It says that the total fabric of life must be made new. There must be a completely different identity, a whole new you, not just a band-aid job. And so holistically, we must expect it must be a holistic and not just a whole repair if we're going to put off the old man and put on the new. We must trust the Lord Jesus Christ that everything that I used to be needs to be redeemed, not just the parts that I was dissatisfied with, not just the old hole on the elbow, not just those few moments of pride, not just a couple of glances of lust. But the Lord wants us to realize that our lives need to be holistically handed over and not just portions. This is verse 8 speaking to us, right? With its practices, put to death, put off the old self, to take it off holistically. But then verse 10 tells us, and put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your creator. It must be a constant and not static renewal. In other words, putting on the new self is not just a moment in time, but just like reading our Bibles until we or as we are becoming more fluent in our own salvation, 
We should also be in a constant mode, not a static mode of saying, well, I've been there and done that, but a constant mode of putting on the new self. If his mercies are new every morning, then my putting on the new self needs to be new every morning. This isn't us being resaved, but it is us being real about the fact that while we have been perfected, we are being sanctified. Verse 11 tells us that in Christ there is no Greek, no Jew, no circumcision, no uncircumcision, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. It must not only be a a, a holistic approach to putting on and off the, the, the new self. It must be constant and not static. But it must also be spiritual and not just social. When the Lord Jesus Christ died for me on the cross and was raised... He did not, he was not raised so that I could become the new and improved quintessential black male. Are you hearing me? He wasn't trying to improve the current version. He was trying to totally redeem. It is a spiritual re-identification, not a social one. Notice all those social distinctives. He says, these things dissolve when I am in Christ because what he is doing is a spiritual work to make me new in my creator, to recreate me. So this is not me just going to God and saying, make me a better version of Roderick or you a better version of Doria or a better version of Carrie or a better version of Ryan. So God isn't just trying to tack on these upgrades he really is making us brand new. Do we trust that? So that all these other identities then become subordinate to the identity that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are called to bring into vivid reality what it means to be raised with him. To bring it into practical reality. To seek and set on a regular basis my, this new power so that I'm not ignorant of the particulars of my salvation. To put to death and to put away the practices of the old life, and to put off the old man and to constantly, repeatedly, and holistically put on the new person as often as God would show me as areas of my life that are still wanting and needing of sanctification. Now, one might ask the question, why can't we just do this on our own? Why do we need Jesus in particular? This just sounds like Rod just... Uh, you know, just kind of gritting your teeth and decided to do better, to live better, right? Well, the shelves are already littered at infinitum with self-help books. Do you see things getting that much better? I, I want to give you some other striking details. Is it not striking to you that when it comes to lust, promiscuity, and impurity, that Atlanta is both the headquarters of the CDC and ground zero for the, for the HIV epidemic. Our culture is not absent of education, information, and strategy. It's obvious that we don't need more information. We need something bigger than information to, cha- to, to, to address some of the challenges in our culture. Is it not striking to you that Atlanta is the headquarters of the civil rights movement but still sits at the heart of great division inside the perimeter and outside the perimeter racially and socioeconomically. So it's not, it's not lack of proximity and access to good dogma and ideas. We got that. So we must need some power that is bigger than us, that's bigger than just better education and opportunity. Does it not startle you that the cities that have the greatest murders the most and most frequent murders by virtue of gun violence already have the most aggressive gun control legislation. 
Does that not startle you? So what, what, what these things tell you, this is not a position paper on any political thing. What this is, is just asking you to sweep the news blotter and to look across the country and see that human beings have very detailed, particular, and elaborate strategies for addressing the greatest crises among us. And all we're calling for is more legislation, more policy, more education, more execution, more doing, more trying, more reading, more meal plans, more diets, more this and that. And every time we turn around, we see a new side effect that shows us that none of those local, earthly, below heaven strategies are working. And so I submit to you, because what we have been doing with our extremely advanced and well-evolved social and educated selves, because those things aren't fixing, I submit to you, perhaps we need to be raised with Christ. Perhaps we need a power beyond our own to do something that is beyond anything that we could possibly own. Perhaps we need the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead working within our hearts and not just in our heads, constantly making us a brand new. We have proven we are our own test case for the desperate need for the gospel. We don't need anyone else to tell us the difference between right and wrong. We need someone to empower us to live it out even when we are the primary executor of the wrong. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need Jesus so desperately, but yet so simply. His invite is not complex at all. He simply asks us to recognize him as being Lord over all. And we'll spend the rest of our lives together showing you and teaching you what that means in your marriage, what that means with your money, what that means on your job, what that means in your relationship with your siblings, what that means for for things that are happening across the country, what that means for your politicians. The Lord says, join me on this walk of eternity and let the power be working you where I'm not just downloading policy and strategy, but I am actually working on you individually and making your life the fundamental proof point that the old man can be put to death and that the new man can be brought to life. I think it is a vivid portrait that we are called to recognize Not just that Jesus was raised, but that we have been raised with him and seated with him. God's call in the gospel is to restore what has always and already been broken. And that is a desire to have unbroken fellowship and communion with us, which is not just having closer proximity, but he wants us to be like him where we can have the same conversation. We have the same love We we rejoice on the same things and we hate the same things. This is the kind of communion that God calls us into. And he says, that's not possible except Jesus Christ die on your behalf to remove the enmity between us. And unless he is raised to take away the sin that holds you back and the power that dominates us, we need Jesus. We need him desperately, not just the unbeliever. But even the current believer, we need the power of the resurrection working in us in a very practical way to constantly remind us of who we are in him, to empower us to be who we are in him, and to give us what it takes to put away the old life. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning thanking you and praising you for the beauty of the gospel, the glory of the resurrection, and Lord God, the mystery of how it all works together. But you clarified the mystery by telling us and calling us to place faith in this work. Not to try to figure it all out, but to place faith in this work. And we thank you for that call. We ask, oh God, this morning, that we would hand our hearts over to you and officially begin to live new. 
Search us out and show us where you're not fully Lord yet in our lives, that we might hand those areas over. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My ask for, of you this morning from an application perspective is that if you're not reading your Bible daily, would you start? And don't just read for compliance because the pastor asked you to or because that's what good old Christians are supposed to do. Don't just read for comprehension to kind of fancy your intellect and come up with some new vocabulary. Read with a view toward communion. Refuse to put that book or that iPad down until you have met with him and he has said something about himself that has soaked into your hearts and mind. It may not demand that you read 30 chapters of Leviticus. Maybe you just need two to three verses that you read with real intensity and ask the Lord to meet with you in the text. I'm not asking you to write books. I'm not asking you to go to seminary. I'm asking you to read your Bible. Read your Bible, but read it with a certain kind of intentionality. Not for compliance, because this is an initiative from the church. Not out of just comprehension, so you can get new vocabulary. But I'm asking you to read for communion's sake. Lord, meet with me, please. Can we do that, church fam? Amen.